Isaiah chapter 61. We often talk about uh, the book of Romans being the great theological book of the New Testament, the theological trees, justification, salvation, uh, although all of God's word is is breathed out by God and uh, uh, of utmost importance and uh, is profitable for us. Uh, but we often refer to Romans because of the great nature and substance and the way in Paul, which the Spirit had Paul write it. And I say the Spirit had Paul write it that way. Paul didn't write these words. The Spirit gave them him the words to write. Um, these writers didn't write of their own accord. We often talk about the style and the substance and the way that they write and everything. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives them the words to write. And uh, we, uh, we often talk about that in Romans. Well, I feel that uh, Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. Uh, it is a great uh, book uh, to study. To glean a lot of things uh, spiritually out of this, uh, from the physical things that we see there, and uh, what a wonderful, wonderful book with lots of gospel nuggets throughout it. So, uh, if you've never done a study through Isaiah, I would recommend you uh, recommend you do that. It's a wonderful book. We'll be looking today in Isaiah chapter sixty-one. And I'm going to read verse 10, and we're going to eventually read verses 1 through 9 here in just a minute, but I want to make note of verse 10 this morning, something that was on my mind. Matter of fact, I saw this verse on somebody's Facebook post uh, this week, and right off the top of my head, I can't remember who it was, but um, anyway, I saw this verse that somebody had shared on their Facebook page, got to thinking about it, uh, got to reading it. Yesterday, a lot on my, uh, got my iPad out and kind of started looking at some of the words on there on my Bible program, kind of looking at some of the Hebrew words behind some of this and just kind of looking at some of the, uh, references that this verse has, uh, to, to other verses in the scriptures. And so I thought kind of that was where the Lord was kind of directing me and leading me to talk about this morning, uh, is, uh, this passage and how Amazing it is sometimes how the Lord brings these things to our mind and how he uh, does it. You know, I don't, I'll just be honest, I don't always sit down and just prepare outlines or anything like that. Most generally, I never do outlines. I'll put down some verses. Um, I'll put down some verses and and uh, adjoining verses and things like that. But uh, uh, the Lord often brings uh, stuff to my mind, and that's kind of where I, I, I follow after that. And don't have kind of a set pattern necessarily all the time. So uh, anyway, this is kind of what the Lord has uh, kind of been uh, speaking to my heart, at least in the last couple of days. Isaiah 61 and verse 10, the Word of God says this, I will great re- greatly rejoice in the Lord... My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Let's bow and have a word of prayer. Father, we come now asking you to please come and meet with us today. 
We could come, Lord, uh, asking that you might help us, that you might be with us by your Spirit, leading us into truth, Lord. We pray that you would lead us in our worship, that you might prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, uh, reveal these things to us. May we see Christ today in what we speak about. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We thank you for these brethren that's gathered here today. We ask, Lord, that you just might speak to us through your word. We thank you, Father, for the opportunities that we have always to gather together. And, uh, Lord, we just pray now that uh, even now the singing beforehand, uh, Lord, that it has been honor uh, to you that we have uh, lifted our voices from a heart that has been prepared by Christ and uh, his spirit has uh, aided us and, and enabled us to worship in spirit and in truth as we sang and now even as we worship around the word of God to hear of Christ and what he has done for us and so Father Lord I pray that today that you might encourage and edify your people Lord I pray that you might convert uh, your elect that you have yet to grant repentance and uh, faith to Lord that today that you might draw them to yourselves call them by the gospel and Father, again, we just thank you for the word of God that we have before us, the record of Christ Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that today we might be faithful to the truth that's found in it. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach that I might not speak of my own accord, by my own wisdom and by the traditions of men or creeds and confessions. But Father, that I might preach um, the very words of God and their truthfulness as they've been given to us and preserved for us through all these years. And we just ask, Lord, that you just might uh, be glorified, uh, that you might be uh, honored uh, in all that we do and all that we say today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Here we find in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10, um, <coughs> A verse of scripture that actually, as I was looking at this yesterday, um, kind of went off and was looking at a, at several different writers and what their take on this was, and not so much to tell me what to say. I, I often disregard mostly what men say and just pray that the Spirit would teach me. Uh, he's the only one who can reveal truth to us. Uh, men can't reveal truth to us. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit to reveal truth. And so, uh, uh, you know, we rely on that uh, as our teacher. But yet, I, I went to these other men just to kind of look to see, because a lot of times I'm edified by what men say. It seems to sometimes line up with what uh, the Spirit is, at least uh, what little bit of light that I've been given on certain things, uh, what the Spirit has taught. And, uh, and it's edifying to see those things. Uh, sometimes just out of curiosity, just seeing what other what other writers are saying about uh, some of these things. And that was kind of the main thing. I was kind of curious because I had my thoughts on this verse. Whenever I first read this, as I mentioned, I've seen this verse uh, on somebody's Facebook page. And whenever I first read it, and I, and I think even maybe the, uh, uh, the, the way in which it was used on that post uh, was uh, pointed in one direction here, uh, meant... The context of who this was talking about, um, and uh, whenever I seen it, I just kind of began to think, you know, this kind of hits me a little bit different. So I thought, well, let's see kind of what some other people think about that. And, 
and everything. See if anybody kind of thinks the same way that I do. But in looking at all those different writers on this particular verse, um, I found that the majority of them, if, I mean, most of them, I really didn't hardly find anybody that had a differing opinion, maybe except a one or two. Uh, but, as a matter of fact, <laughs> the majority of them, not only did they have a differing opinion, a lot of those who had the differing opinion even said the opinion that I seem to have, the interpretation I seem to have of it, said that it was not that interpretation. So there's a couple of writers that would vehemently maybe disagree with me uh, on this. But anyway, we, we pray that it's what I speak this morning is, is the truth. But some people, and the majority, as I said, of the people that I read, they look at this verse, and maybe you did too whenever I read this, your first thoughts went to, who, who, who do you think the subject matter is of this verse? And most of us would probably say, well, that's talking about the elect of God. That's the, the elect of God, those who are clothed with the salvation of Jehovah. Is that not what it says there? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garment of salvation. Is that truly something talking about the, the elect of God? Uh, you know, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness that I'm like a bride adorned with jewels. Uh, so our first thought or our, of our mind would go, hey, you know, that's speaking of the elect of God. And, and brother, these things are actually true. I mean, this is very true of the elect of God. Uh, we are uh, uh, clothed uh, with the robe of Christ's righteousness. He has imputed his righteousness unto us. Uh, we are um, we are clothed uh, with the garments of his salvation. Okay? We are clothed with His uh, righteousness, and, and His salvation is and only for the elect of God. Uh, so these things are very true, and we are, as the people of God, like a bride adorned for her husband, the Bible teaches us. So these things that are being said in verse 10 is very true about the elect of God, but is this who is in context of this passage? Uh, is this who we're talking about? See, we have no righteousness of our own. But here we see that this person in verse 10 that is being spoken of is uh, is clothed with the garments of salvation and is covered with the robe of righteousness, is adorned or decked with ornaments and adorned with jewels. This person has this to themselves and is displaying these things, so to speak, Thanking God for the fact that these things are there, and um, and so we often will think, or many would would think, as I read yesterday, many thinks that this is speaking primarily of the elect of God. And brethren, again, like I said, I I, I have no doubt that these things are true of us, but they're true of us because they are first true of the Lord Jesus Christ. The context of verse 10 is not the elect to themselves alone, but all but the elect as who they are in Christ Jesus. This verse 10 is speaking of Jesus. It's speaking of God becoming flesh as the substitute for us. 
as the mediator, as the uh, surety for for his people. <coughs> Whenever God took on flesh, he took on flesh for the purpose, he, he took on the role of son for the purpose of redeeming the people that God had given him before the foundation of the world, who through Adam uh, would be sinners, who through Adam in the flesh would be uh, vile, who would be wicked and unworthy and 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 full of sin and could not do anything righteous. The Bible says that we uh, in and of ourselves in this flesh are no good thing and that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do that's ever good. The only one who's righteous is Christ. So if we have a righteousness, if we are said to be righteous, it's not because we do righteousness. It's not because we have righteous deeds that we are doing. It's because of Christ, His righteousness in our place. He performed all the righteousness that was required for God. He is the one who was imputed with all of our sin and took on our penalty that we should have taken, but yet He took it in our place in the flesh. And in that flesh, taking all of that, God was able to then take and all the righteousness of Christ place it upon us. And so we uh, are dressed in fine uh, garments of salvation. We are covered with the robe of His righteousness. We are decked with jewels. We are, are, are decked with uh, garments. Uh, we are decked with uh, jewels and ornaments. These things are true of us, but it's true because Christ assumed and, and came forth as one of us, as our head. The second Adam came forth as the head of his kind. He is the head of his seed. He is the, the progenitor of his seed. He is the one who is the first seed, and all seeds in him are like him. He is a spiritual seed, where Adam was a natural seed, a fleshly seed, and all he could do was sin. He could do nothing else but sin. And everybody who is in Adam, in the flesh, all they can do is sin. But for those who are the elect of God, chosen before the foundation of the world, predestinated uh, unto adoption, predestinated unto salvation... They are a spiritual people that is in Christ Jesus. And that was before the world ever began. Before anything was ever created. Before you was ever even born, if you were a child of grace, you were already elected of God and put into union with Christ Jesus. He took on the mantle of your mediator. He took on the mantle of your priest. He took on the mantle of your surety, your substitute, and in your place he has stood from all eternity. And whenever he came in time and manifested this salvation by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, whenever he came and did that, it was to show forth uh, all the promises that God had made in that covenant with Christ as he assumed that role of mediator, as, as he assumed the role of prophet, priest, king, all these roles that Christ uh, took on as he took on flesh, we see that all those things we have because we are heirs of Christ, because we are united with Christ Jesus. Because Christ did it, we've done it. Christ fulfilled all the law, therefore, if you're a child of grace, you have fulfilled all the law. Rest in that. 
If Christ has suffered the penalty for sin, you have suffered the penalty for sin. Rest in that. That there is therefore no more (coughs) condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. That He has forgiven you of everything. This is true of the child of grace, but it's true because of our union with Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is in view here as the one who has the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness, the deck adornments, the the, um, uh, adorned jewels. He is the one that has that, and by extension, we have it. Now, why do I think that this is speaking of Jesus Christ? Well, if you look back, starting in verse 1, and let's read down to verse 10. And let's see what is the preceding verses talking about. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, and that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and all the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priest of the Lord. <coughs> Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame shall, uh, ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in the land they shall possess the double everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. And I will direct their work in truth and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. Now, if you look at it, those verses right before verse 10 seem, seem to be talking, are talking about the people of God, the seed of Christ, the seed of, 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 of Jesus, uh, and everything. But who is in context? He's talking about what they are receiving based upon who's at the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all that mourn, and to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the awful joy of mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. So this is the activity of one person on behalf of somebody else and somebody else being the recipients 
of those very things. And so from verse 4 down to verse 9, we see the recipients and what they will receive because of the person in verses 1 through 3. Now, how do we know verses 1 through 3 is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? Because as preachers are, and I've heard this, I've actually preached this before, we preachers are the ones who, by the preaching of the gospel, are the ones who have been anointed to preach good tidings unto the meek. We are the ones sent out to bind up the brokenhearted with the preaching of our gospel, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open the prisons to them that are bound. We see that in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about those things. But is that talking about this preacher? No, it's talking about the preacher. It's talking about Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, over to Luke chapter 4. The New Testament gives commentary on this Old Testament passage. Luke chapter 4. And we find out exactly who this preacher is that preaches these things. We do have preachers, and they are important, brethren. God has ordained that there be preachers within the church. But listen, unless the preacher, unless the preacher preaches, there is no success. Luke chapter 4, and if you would, look with me, starting in verse 14. Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. And Jesus returned, this is after uh, after the temptation in the wilderness. Um, uh, the temptation in the wilderness with the devil. Um, verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah. That's just the Greek way of saying Isaiah. So here's Christ. He went into the synagogue and he begins to preach. And he's preaching from the book of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So here we see that Christ Jesus himself has given commentary on Isaiah 61 on who this person is. It's himself. Jesus Christ is the preacher who has been anointed of God to preach deliverance, to preach liberty to those who are in Zion. He's the one who has been given to preach these things and to proclaim 
the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all that mourn. He is the preacher. He is the one in view here. So now, whenever we get down to verse 10, and it says, after the person in view talks about all he has done and is doing for his people, he says, I will greatly rejoice in my Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me. Not we, not us, even though that's true, he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Now, let's look at a few more verses, and I'm going to talk about that here in just a minute. But let's, there in Isaiah, go back to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Go back to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Starting in verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Now remember, brethren, Jesus Christ is God manifested in the flesh. He is God who has taken on human flesh. But the flesh that He has taken on is not natural. It is not of the earth earthy. It is not sinful. It is perfect. It is holy. It is righteous. There is no blemish in that flesh that He has. While He took on the form of His people, He is not exactly like His people because He is God manifested in the flesh. He is not of this world. He is of heaven. The Bible says that He has came down from heaven. That He has assumed this flesh, but listen, this flesh is not of the earth earthy. Otherwise, He would be of Adam, and if He was of Adam, then He would have been like us in the fact that we are sinners. And He did not have a sin nature. He did not have... The flesh that could not keep the law of God. He was different. Likened unto us, but different. Right? Now, we see here, it says here, the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of fear of the Lord. You say, well, how come he had the fear of the Lord if he was God? Well, remember, the Bible tells us uh, that Jesus in uh, Philippians... It says that even though he thought equality with God uh, was not robbery, to be equal with God is not robbery, he took on the form of a servant. He took on a form of a servant. Who are God's servants? His elect, right? His elect are his servants. I would also say the non-elect are his servants too in the fact that they have been created also for a purpose to bring forth and show forth the glory of God in judgment. Okay, they, they are created as wicked. They are created as reprobates. They are created for destruction, Romans 9 tells us. And so, but as the form of a servant, he came in the form of a servant, but he was still equal with God. 
Because he was God, manifested in the flesh. Colossians tells us that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. That he is the image of the invisible God. That Christ is that triune witness of God manifested in flesh. Right? So he, taking on the form of a servant, in his submission in that nature, in his submission as as coming in the flesh on our behalf as our substitute, as our um, surety, as our uh, mediator, he come in our form, in our place, and he feared the Lord. He submitted himself to God and all the terms of the covenant of what he was coming to do on our behalf to substitute for us. He did all those things. And therefore, if we have wisdom, if we have understanding, if we have counsel, if we have knowledge, if we have fear, it is because of our union with Christ Jesus and because the first seed had those characteristics, all of his seed that's in him will also have those characteristics. He will give unto them the same characteristics that he had. That goes all the way back to Genesis and the principle that's laid down by God in the very beginning. That all seeds brought forth after their own kind. Right? Adam brought forth after his own kind people of the flesh who could not keep the law of God. Christ, the second (coughs) Adam, brought forth his seed, a spiritual seed, not born of earth, but born from above, and that seed cannot sin. It is perfect. Created in true holiness and righteousness. Ones that fear God. Ones who are given understanding by the Spirit of God whenever the Spirit of God gives them such. And it says, And he shall make of him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of the ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity from the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. Okay, so he's going to be clothed in righteousness. It's a visual thing. He himself is righteousness, right? We just sang sang the hymn, Jehovah said to you, The Lord, our righteousness. He's not righteous because He does righteous things. He's righteous because He is righteous. Therefore, everything He does is righteous. We are sinners, not because we sin, but because we have the nature to sin. The reason we sin is because that is our nature. We sin. Sin comes forth from the nature of sin. Righteousness comes forth from the nature of righteousness. Christ is righteous in and of Himself. That's His characteristic. That's who He is. He is the embodiment of righteousness. Therefore, anything He does is righteous. Righteous works are His works. If we do righteous works, it's because God has done righteous works in us. Not because we've figured it out, not because we've studied hard enough, not because we've chastened ourselves to the point of, you know, we, we've struggled and we've brought ourselves into submission. Listen, Paul only brought himself into submission 
his body into submission because the Holy Spirit of God had enabled him to do such. It was not Paul's flesh that brought himself into submission. I know people might use that phrase or that term. But here we see, the righteous and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So we see here that he is clothed in righteousness. We see that the Spirit is upon him. Who is it talking about? It's talking about Christ. So we see in Isaiah 61 that must be Christ because the Spirit of the Lord was on Christ. The Spirit of the Lord gave him to be adorned in these things and to be clothed with righteousness. Let's go to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Let's look at verse 16. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. It said, And Jesus, when He was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, the only reason that God can say that He is pleased with anybody is because they are righteous, right? Whenever God, if God be pleased with us, He's pleased with us, not because of our flesh and the works that we do in them, but He's pleased because of Christ's work on our behalf. His righteousness is who he sees. Who he takes into account as our righteousness. Notice there again, we see the Bible once again talks about the Spirit of God being upon Christ Jesus. Look if you would at John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Look with me if you would down verse 29. It says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I am uh, said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now I'm just going to make a side note here. This isn't part of what I'm talking about, but I just want you to notice what John says here. John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is preferred or takes preference or takes position above me. He he is preferred of God above me. Okay? He is preferred before me. He said, for he was before me. Now, if anybody is a student of, of the Scriptures and has been taught of God, knows that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin in, by flesh, by, 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 uh, uh, by birth there, he is John's cousin, and he was born six months before Jesus was born. So how can John say that Jesus was before him when Jesus was, or, or Jesus was born six months after John? Well, he's talking about the fact that Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus was before him. And I would even go so far to say, and this this raises some hairs in some circles, I guess. But I would even say Jesus in his manhood was before John. Jesus took on manhood 
as the mediator between God and man before he came by the virgin. The Bible says that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. Well, when did Jesus Christ assume his mediatorial uh, office? He assumed it in the covenant of grace. That was before the world began. The Bible says in John chapter 6 that, that he came down, he was the, the bread that came down out of heaven. And he said, this bread is my body. So I would I would put forth that Jesus' manhood uh, has, uh, ha- has been there from the very beginning of creation. The Bible says that he is the firstborn of all creation. But that's just a side note there. Um, let's continue on. He says, verse 31, And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And so here we see very clearly the Bible in three places. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses the thing is established. Um, we see that Christ had the Spirit of God upon him. Therefore I say that in Isaiah 61, uh, back to our passage, that this is speaking uh, of Christ Jesus. Uh, he is in context there. Now, let's go back to Isaiah 61, and let's look at a few things. Isaiah 61, back in verse 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Now, we find that this uh, a petition in the Psalms. And if you want to start turning there, Psalms chapter 20. We find a petition there that is being prayed, being asked about. Psalms chapter 20. Starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. 
Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. So here is the cry or a plea, uh, a petition from the people of God to Jehovah that the king might save them, that the king might be victorious in his work. And then we go to the next psalm, Psalm 21, and we see the answer to this petition. It says, The king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. Now we just read in Psalm or Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. And here we see in the psalmist speaking of Christ Jesus, The king shall joy in my strength in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire. Didn't we he just pray? <coughs> Didn't the people just pray that uh, grant thee according to thy own heart and fulfill all thy counsel? God's desire? Now what is that desire? Do we know what that is? We're going to look at that here in just a minute, but let's read on. He says, Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withholden the request of his lips. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. That word preventest there in the Hebrew, and also Old English, by the way, the time of uh, King James writing. That word preventest there is not stop. Okay, When we use the word prevent, it means uh, it means to keep from, to stop. Uh, from happening. But this word preventist here means to uh, allow, to get, to bring forth, to show forth. Uh, For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness, thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. So here we see the blessings of goodness and a crown of gold set upon his head. He asked life of thee, and thou gavest him even length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him, for thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. For the king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. So here we see that the king is trusting in God. Looking to God, trusting on Him. We see all these things that that is indicative of Christ and His submission. It says, For the king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. What does that mean? That means God's enemies are not going to hide. They're not going to get away with anything. They're not going to slip by. They're not going to slip through the cracks, so to speak. They're not going to be able to escape his judgment. Now, didn't we just read that Christ had been given power of judgment? He says, The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shall thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. Remember, we're of the seed of Christ. The reprobate is of the seed of the devil. They're the children of the devil. The devil has planted them in the world. Christ has planted his seed throughout the world. 
Now, ultimately, God has predestined where every person's habitation is. But the Bible says that the seed of the wicked one, that the wicked one is the one who planted them. That Satan is the one who has planted them in the world, which is the soil, which is the ground. Right? It says, The fruit shall thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. God's going to destroy the wicked from among his people. For they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischief device which they are not able to perform. Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength, so we will sing and praise thy power. So we see here that this rejoicing was the rejoicing of the success that was prayed about in Psalm 20. And so we find that God had given Christ the desire of his heart. Now what was that that he wanted? What was the desire of Christ? What is his desire? Well, I got to looking at places in the scripture that speaks of uh, the desire of Christ. And one of them is found in the Song of Solomon. Turn, if you would, if you would about the, uh, to the uh, book of Song of Solomon. A lot of people don't really read the Song of Solomon very much, and I'll be honest, I don't read, read it real often myself. A lot of people think this is talking about a husband and a wife's relationship and how we ought to read that, to know how we are to treat our husbands and our wives. And if this is a little romance novel that God has placed in the Bible for our reading. Good romance novels. This is the romance novels that you can read, Christian ladies. You know, stuff like that. This is this is just like every other book of the Bible. This is a book about Jesus Christ. This is a book about Christ and His redemptive work. It's about Christ, His redemptive work, and His redemptive work of His people, His love for His people. But brethren, don't forget, everything in this book is about Christ. But look with me if you would, Psalm Solomon. Chapter 7, look at verse 10. It says, I am my beloved's, and this is the bride, this is the wife talking. It said, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Ain't that amazing to think that Christ's desire is towards his people? His love, his devotion. The Bible says that He ever lives to intercede for us. That's His whole purpose of taking on flesh, that He ever lives to intercede for us. That's why He assumed the flesh. That's why He has remained in flesh. That's why He will continue to be in flesh throughout all time. Because He ever lives to not only be God manifested in the flesh so that man who cannot see an invisible God might see a visible God, but that we might also be reminded of His ever intercession on our behalf. When we see Christ in flesh, we will always be reminded of His broken body and His shed blood. We will always be reminded about how He took on Himself our infirmities. We will be reminded when we see Him in body form. We will be reminded. Now, brethren, 
know that his body is, is glorified. Our bodies will be eventually glorified whenever he comes for us. But brethren, the very fact that Christ still has assumed flesh and whatever kind of flesh that is after his resurrection, I'll be honest, I don't know. It's not the same as it was before, but it's it's still flesh. It's flesh and bone. And listen, the Bible says that that flesh and that bone, him being man, he is ever living to intercede for us. I can't imagine that, but that's because he has been given a desire. Or he has a desire. He can't be given anything. He has a desire for his people. Now, we see another thing in Psalm. Go back to Psalm 21. In the Psalms, there we read, and I kind of made note of it, and said we'd come back to it. But if you notice there in the <clears throat> Psalm, chapter 21 and verse 3, it says, Thou sentest a crown of pure gold upon his head. That word crown there, and back in our passage in, uh, in uh, Isaiah 61, the word crown there, in Isaiah 61.10, it says, As a bride adorneth herself with her jewels, that word jewels there, that word there means diadem. A crown is a diadem. You know, we we sing the song, crown him with many crowns, bring forth the royal diadem, okay? Uh, we don't make him king. We don't crown him as king. That song is a little bit off theologically, uh, biblically. We don't crown him. God has crowned himself. God is who he is. Nobody makes him king. Now, it could be talking forth as the procession of where the king who owns the crown, who it's rightfully his, has always been his, has the procession where the people bring forth and show forth their submission to him by placing the crown upon his head, but it doesn't make him the king. Now, I can probably get around that just a little bit, maybe. But, uh, but brethren, know that he has the king, the crown, he has the diadem, he has the jewels to show forth his majestic person. That he is the king of kings. That he is over all. That he is the sovereign of the universe. He is the sovereign of all things. And so we see here that Christ is the one that has the crown, right? He is the king. He is, the Bible says he is the king of kings, by the way. All these kings that we see in the, this world are nothing. He is the king. He is the only king. All other kings are frauds. They say that I'm a sovereign of my territory where I live and all like that. And underneath the kings, they have what's called lords. This is in the old feudal system back in the old days. They may still have it now over in those European countries. But they had kings, and under the kings, they had lords. The lords were not quite the kings, but they were an establishment, and therefore they had underneath them all their servants. So they were given portions of land that they were to rule over under the king. Well, the Bible says that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
all the kings and all the lords that are spoken of in this world are nothing. He is the king and he is the Lord. All others are just frauds. They will not have any say-so. They will not have any power. They will not have any uh, uh, sovereignty. Matter of fact, they don't even have any sovereignty now. So, we see Christ. He's got the diadem. He has got the crown. Uh, he has got the robe of righteousness. He has got the, uh, the, the decking himself with ornaments. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is the decking of the ornaments? Well, the decking of the ornaments, that word decking there, it means to officiate as a priest. It means to mediate. <coughs> Who is the priest? Who is the mediator? Is it not Christ Jesus? In verse 10 it says, that he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, or as the bridegroom officiates as priest with ornaments. Now the word ornaments there also means jewels. We see also he talks about being adorned with jewels. <clears throat> I kind of got to put some things together and I pray that this is the spirit that put them together and put them in my mind uh, and everything. But the Bible talks about Christ putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That the armor of the Lord, you, in the New Testament, the Bible says put on the full armor of the Lord. In most churches, everybody thinks that that is us getting in our Bibles and we're putting on all this and we start naming what each one of these armors is. It says, you know, the, the uh, helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and have, have your loins girded about with the gospel and all this stuff. <clears throat> and it talks about that and we think, well, that's what we have to do. We have to arm ourselves with this armor so that we can defend ourselves against the devil. But brethren, that's not what the New Testament teaching is about the armor of God. That when it tells us to put on the whole armor of God, what that's telling us is put on Christ. Christ is the armor. Everything about every piece of armor. You go to the New Testament, you read every piece of that armor, and every piece of that armor speaks of Christ. The shield of faith. We are justified by the faith of Christ. The sword of the Spirit. He is the one who has the Spirit without measure. The helmet of salvation. We just read. He is the garment of salvation. He is salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He is salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. He is our righteousness or our covering. He is our righteousness. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Him. So every piece of that armor speaks of Christ Jesus. And so what it says when it says put on the armor of God, it means to reckon yourself in Christ Jesus and rest in His work alone. That's how you put out the fiery darts of the, of the devil. The fiery darts of the devil are darts that are telling you to try to make righteousness of your own works, of your own flesh. To lean upon your own understanding. To do your own thing. To not follow after the half God said. That's the fiery darts of the devil. 
Fiery darts of the devil isn't being poor, being sick, having an old clunker car that the people on TV tell you are. You've got to resist the devil. You'll be rich. I don't know about you guys, but my whole time, whole, life, whole Christian life, I've been poor. I'm not as poor as some people, but I'm definitely not rich. Monetarily, get by paycheck to paycheck. Is it because we don't have enough faith? Because we're in the wrong denomination? <laughs> if we're in a denomination? No. What is all this talking about? The fiery darts of the devil is the, is the very fact, fact that Satan tries to attack our mind and to try to tell us that our dependency needs to be in and of ourselves and not of Christ. But Christ is everything that shields us from anything. It's His salvation. And here we see the breastplate of righteousness is Christ Jesus. Do you remember the priest in the Old Testament? They would put on a breastplate in that ephod that they would ephod that they would wear. They would put on a breastplate, and on that breastplate, they would have what? What did they have on there? They had twelve jewels. Each one of those jewels engraved with the names of each one of the tribes of Israel. Now, what does that mean spiritually? What do we take away from that in the spiritual understanding of those things? Well, those 12 tribes of Israel signify the complete and totality of the people of God. It is all the elect of God. The 12 tribes of Israel are all the tribes of God. That represents all the people of God. When the, when the priest put on that breastplate, he not only had those jewels there, but on his shoulders, he had those jewels he took on... He bore the weight of the people that he was representing. He had on his heart the people of his desire that he was going to do the work for. And whenever he made the sacrifice, it was for them and them only. Those name, those jewels, that's who he was going to sacrifice for. The priest was doing priestly work as the mediator on their behalf. Not everybody else, but only those that's on the breastplate of righteousness. On the breastplate that he had engraved their names. It was on, it was them and them only. And brethren, that signifies that the breastplate is that breastplate of Christ where his desire is for his people. And every one of them, he knows each and every one of them's name. Not one of them will be lost. Everyone for whom the Lord sacrificed, not only as the priest, but as the sacrifice, He mediated on their behalf, and He was the one who took the judgment on their behalf. Everyone for whom Christ died, that breastplate, everyone whom for Christ died, the blood will be sprinkled on their behalf. Whenever the priest finished that sacrifice and the sprinkling of that blood, it was announced to everybody for whom those jewels represented that your atonement has been made, your sins have been forgiven. Whenever Jesus died in our place, 
every child of grace from Adam and to whoever's the last one on the face of this earth before the Lord comes back again and ends everything. Which, by the way, it didn't happen a few days ago as all the date setters were saying. <clears throat> Pet peeve of mine. Quit setting dates and times that Jesus is coming back. That just gives Christianity a black eye every time it doesn't happen. The Lord said nobody's going to know the day or the hour, right? And you think you're going to figure it out when Jesus said nobody's going to know that except the Father? Okay, so let's quit doing that. People making fun of Christianity because of people that do that. Alright, that's my soapbox for the day. <clears throat> the breastplate represented everybody for whom Christ would die. That's what that represented when the priest put that on. And he would sprinkle that blood and, 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 and the announcement of atonement was made and those people were all covered. Well, brethren, it pleased the Lord to be bruised for His people. It pleased the Lord to go and set His face like a flint to the cross. Why? Because it was His desire. His desire was for His people. His love was for His people. And as the priest to be a a uh, to be a um, uh, uh, a what's the word that's leaving my mind to be a priest who is doing his job correctly to be a good priest each day they got up and made those sacrifices over and over and over and over and over. But the Bible says that Christ one time made the sacrifice. For all his people. And at that sacrifice he made for all of his people. Then the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of God. And ever lives to intercede for us. See that priest wore that breastplate. Because it was the people for whom he. Did what? Mediated. Interceded for. It was the one he represented. He was representing on their behalf. Now, brethren, they received, all those people that was in that breastplate received the blessing from what that priest did on their behalf. Brethren, everyone for whom Christ died receives the benefits of salvation, the blessings of salvation, or as the Bible speaks of it, receives the uh, as heirs according to the promise receives the inheritance because of what he did for us so brethren I can only see in this passage in verse 10 I can only see that this is primarily speaking of Christ Jesus but it does extend to the family of God because we are in union with him and because we are in union uh, with him him being our substitute, everything that he received, we received. Everything that he did, we did. Everything that is pronounced for him is pronounced for us. Salvation is of the Lord. It isn't from us. Glory is his and not ours. He is the one who is most glorious. He is the one who is going to be displayed throughout all time, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. 
When the Bible says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with His glory. That means everything that He has created, everything that He has done, in its purpose, in its place, for the reason that He created it, shows forth His glory. Whether it be for damnation, whether it be for salvation, whether it be for profit, whether it be for ruin, whether it be for keeping, whether it be for destroying, whether it be for good times, whether it be for bad times, whether it be for rich or for poor, whether it be for sad, for happy, whether it be for here or over there, everything God has made for Himself. The Bible says, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Be glory forever. Amen. Brethren, this man, Jesus Christ, He is the one who is clothed with the garments of salvation. And therefore we are in Him and clothed with the garments of salvation. He is the one who is covered with the robe of righteousness. Therefore, because we are in Him, we are covered with the robe of righteousness. He is decked with the uh, uh, ornaments and the jewels. And therefore, as being in Him, we too will be glorified as He is glorified. We will be decked in a perfect body that knows no sin as He now resides in a body that knows no sin. We will be like Him, the Bible says, conformed to the image of Christ. Brother, I don't know how that's going to happen. God can do anything. I don't know what it's going to be like when it does happen. I just look forward for when it does happen. Because sin and this body is ready to see Christ. Well, I say sin is. I'm ready to get rid of sin and see this body changed. But brethren, more than anything, we are thankful on behalf of Christ Jesus uh, for all that He has done on our behalf. Right, does anybody have any comments or any questions or anything that you'd like to corrections, rebukes, reproof? Anyone? All right, let's pray. Father, we once again come to you thanking you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that He has done on our behalf. Lord, we're so grateful for salvation. That it's of the Lord and not of our own works, Father, lest we never attain to the righteousness to be accepted by you. Father, we're grateful that righteousness is something that is given, not something that is earned. We thank you for Christ Jesus and the righteousness that he has established on our behalf. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you do for us. In that covenant of the grace, the sending of your Spirit to teach us, the sending of your Spirit to grow us, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us uh, understanding, to give us repentance, to give us faith, Father, to direct us in the paths of righteousness, that we might walk in the way that you would have us to walk as you enable us through the gifts of the Spirit. Father, we just thank you for these things. And we know that our flesh cannot produce these. We know that there is nothing that we do in this flesh that will profit, but only as what is done in the Spirit of God that's in us. And so, Father, Lord, we are thankful for that mighty work 
that you have sent of your Son in his Spirit to us. Lord, we thank you for all these that are here. Again, as always, I pray for those that might be yours here today, Lord, that you have yet to call uh, to repentance and faith. Uh, Lord, that you might call them today even uh, to repent of their own desire to gain righteousness through their fleshly work, that they might see Christ alone as their righteousness. Father, Lord, that you might grant them faith to believe upon you. And Lord, we just pray that in and through that, Lord, that you might also give them the desire to be baptized, as you have called us to do. And Lord, that they might be added to the church uh, on that baptism, that they might, Lord, be also uh, partakers uh, of the fellowship of the brethren here at this place. Lord, we just thank you so much for your salvation, and again, for Christ Jesus, who bore our sin on the cross, that we might be saved. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.